Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're starting a new series of messages this morning around the most well-known last words in the history of history. In all of history, there are no more famous last words than these words that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. Now, you know, we always like to think that when it comes to that time, when it's time for us to to die, to move on, uh, to be with Jesus, those of us that are followers of Christ, we always like to think of the fact that maybe in that final moments we'll have something really important to say, really weighty to say. And it's not always true that people's last words are that important. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, for instance, who is well-known, great founder of our nation, has lots of uh, famous inventions and discoveries and all of that. When it was his last words recorded are, his, his daughter told him to turn over so he could breathe easier. And he said, nothing, my dear, a dying man can do nothing easily. We wish we could have something like profound to say, right? Or we want to leave something with our Children or grandchildren want to leave something behind, but that's not always the case. But in the case of Jesus, he did. As he is on the cross, there are seven sayings, seven words that Jesus utters in the midst of the crucifixion. And every single one of them have theological significance, have importance for us in understanding something about ourselves, something about our Savior, and something about the way that we ought to live. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to take these words, sometimes two at a time, sometimes one at a time. We're going to take one today, and we're going to ask the question, what is happening? What is going on here? How can we relate this to our lives? We're going to start in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 34. And it says this, two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right side, one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes, and they cast lots. I just want to take a moment, and I want to remind us of kind of what got us to this point. And specifically, I want to talk about the 24 hours that happened in Jesus' life right before this moment. This significant moment, obviously, Luke just kind of tells us what happens here. There were criminals there. There was one on each side. There are some, and we'll talk about this in a second, They some that think these two criminals were people that were a part of the band of people that were with Barabbas, who was the prisoner that was released instead of Jesus, that originally those three were supposed to be crucified together. Whatever it is, they're criminals. They're insurrectionists. They're people that were trying to overthrow the government, probably. And they get to the place called the Skull, Golgotha. It was a hill on the outside of the city, and they crucified him there. Luke just kind of gives us that phrase, they crucified him. Now, when Luke is writing this, when he is telling people they crucified him, they would not have needed explanation about what crucifixion was. They saw it. They had seen it. They had been around it. It, it would be like telling us something about the game of basketball. They shot a bas- They hit a three-pointer. Like, we don't have to have explanation. I'm not equating those two as importance. But the point is, they would have known exactly what crucifixion was. They wouldn't have any kind of explanation. And so he doesn't give any. And as the doctor, I wish he would have given us some explanation, but he doesn't. He just says, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And what we have to remember when we read this story, when we read this part of the Scripture, is that Jesus had had the worst 24 hours in the history of the world. And that's not overstatement. 
When you think about what had happened to Jesus in the last 24 hours, it started a little less than 24 hours ago from this moment when he has gathered with his disciples, his best friends, the guys that have been following him for the last three to three and a half years. He's gathered in a room where they are going to eat a family meal. This is how close these guys were. This was a meal that you spent with your family. Passover meal was you gathered your family around. You gathered together. You found a place and you shared this meal with your family. And so Jesus has his family, his spiritual family surrounding him, his best friends, the 12 guys that had followed him, and they sit down for a Passover meal. Now you can hear his heart as he understands what's going on here. John, it gives us detailed descriptions of the prayers that he prayed for those guys, for his followers, for the followers that would come, including us afterwards. You get descriptions of the fact that he washed their feet because nobody in that room would serve him in that way. It would serve each other really in that way. And for Jesus, you can imagine how disheartening it was for him that he had been preaching for three to three and a half years to these guys again and again and again about servanthood, about the first will be last and the last will be first, and that if you've come, I've come to serve, not to be served. And yet they get there to have the meal where he has all this on his heart, weighing on his heart about what's going to happen in the days ahead, in the day ahead how it's going to unfold, how his heart's going to be broken by these men, how their hearts are going to be broken by his death. And in the midst of it all, they can't even take time to wash each other's feet. So Jesus does. And he washes their feet. They serve the meal. And during the meal, he begins to talk about his death, and they are not having any of that. And Jesus, what are you talking about? That's not... The people love you, Jesus. Like, we know there's been some missteps this week. We know the whole throwing the tables over in the temple. That probably didn't go over real well with the people that are higher up. And we know they don't like you. But the people love you, Jesus. The people won't turn against you. And if everybody out there turns against you, Jesus, Peter says, I would never. If everybody in this room turns against you, Jesus, I would never. And Jesus looks at him, heart already breaking, and says, by the time the sun rises in the morning, you're going to deny you even know me three times. And they have the meal. And in the midst of the meal, Jesus talking about his death then says, and one of you in this room is going to be the one that betrays me. Judas, it says, Satan already having entered in his heart, leaves early, goes out to he had already made a deal with the authorities and he goes to find them to tell them where he would be. As the meal finishes, Jesus goes out into the garden where he prays desperately. God, I don't want to do this. But don't let me get in the way of what's supposed to happen here. Don't let my desire change what's supposed to happen. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Scripture says that that moment he was praying so intensely that literally the the blood vessels, the capillaries in his body broke down to the point that he began to sweat blood. And while he is intensely praying to the Father, he walks back and his three closest friends are sound asleep. We're going to get in a moment to the physical torment that Jesus went through before we get to this point. But you have to understand, the emotional torment of his friends was already in full effect before physical stuff ever started. He says, can't you even stay awake for an hour? But look, and he looks up, and Judas, 
one of his closest associates, one of the twelve, the treasurer of the, of the group that had assembled and had followed him for three and a half years, walks with them. He kisses them on the cheek. They are arrested, and Jesus is drugged into three sham trials where he is not given a fair shake, where he is not allowed evidence to come in. It would not have been a trial that was stood up in any court in the history of the world, really, but especially not in a Jewish court or in a Roman court. And yet they still get to the point where the leader says, I find nothing wrong with him. And the leaders say, we demand him to be found guilty. So they put Jesus up on the platform. And on one side of the platform is Jesus, and the other side is Barabbas. Now here's the thing you have to understand about that moment. Jesus had already been tortured. He'd already been beaten. He'd already been whipped. He'd already been gotten ready for this moment. They stood in before the crowd and they said, who do you want, the terrorist insurrectionist Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And the crowd, the people of God, the people who are supposed to be the followers of Yahweh begin to yell for the Son of God to be crucified. And Jesus looks out upon an angry mob of people that he created and they're yelling, crucify him. During this whole process, Jesus would have literally been whipped 39 times with a whip that would have had embedded bone and shards of glass they could find, and different things that would have been embedded into the whip. And every time they hit him on the back and yanked it, the idea was to dig that into the skin and yank it, parts of his flesh would have been ripped off. And 39 times that would have happened to the point that his back would have been flayed open. They then put a cross beam on him and tell him to carry it. And he is so weak he cannot. So they give it to somebody else to carry. They carry him to the place called the skull. And when it says, Luke says, they crucified him, that means they laid him on the ground on that cross beam and they drove what would look like railroad spikes to us through, probably not the palms of his hand. The wrist was considered part of the hand, but probably right through the wrist of the hand. Right there, one of the largest nerves in the body is found. They would have driven railroad spikes into each of those places. They would have placed his foot at the base of the cross they would have crossed them and put them at an angle where he could not push off on them very well and they would have driven another spike right through those feet they would have placed him up and he would now be in front of all people front and center among those people literally taking barabbas's place in the center section and the watch would begin for him to die it was an hours-long process. The way people died on the cross was through, they just couldn't get enough air. They would have to lift up to breathe out. They could get air in, but they couldn't get enough out. They couldn't get out all that they needed to in order to make that system work well. And they would try with all their might to push up or on their feet and on their arms, but those are nailed in. And every time they pushed up, the pain would have intensified even more. They would scream. There were guttural screams oftentimes for people on the cross. They invented a word, a word in the Roman language to talk about what happened on the cross because they could not come up with how horrific it was. We take that word today we call it excruciating which means literally out of the cross and as jesus is now on the cross nails in the wrist and in the feet stressing every moment to breathe seven times he says something over the next few weeks we're going to talk about what he says because i think if in seven times he got up enough strength in that moment to speak we ought to listen.
And here's the amazing thing about that. With everything I've just described, betrayal by friends, people had turned their back on him, his closest ones had run away, his mother is sitting at the foot of the cross, he is looking into her face while all of this pain is happening, the people he created in the nation that his father had called out, the people that he had been a part of, the reason he had come to save had rejected him, turned their back on him and said, we want you dead. The first words that come out of his mouth in the midst of all of that are, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. What's fascinating to me about this is, first of all, it's a prayer. That in his most desperate time, Jesus called out to his father. Now, their relationship was closer than any relationship we could ever imagine. It is a perfect relationship. The God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit are together in a perfect relationship. And in the midst of that, their relationship with one another, he cries out to his father and says, Father, forgive them. His first, last words were a prayer. And in these moments, when he is most difficult times, when he is physically exhausted and in pain and is excruciating pain, he cries out to the Father. But here's what's amazing to me. In those moments, he goes to the Father in prayer on behalf of other people. I mean, think about it. If there was ever a time when it would have been understandable and expected for Jesus to think about himself for a moment, this is it. And yet in this moment, he stops to pray for others. And the question is, for whom is he praying? Who is he praying about? And the crazy thing here is he is praying literally at that moment for the people that are crucifying him, for the people that are driving the stakes into his wrist, to the people that are driving the stakes into his feet, for the people that tells us in the scripture in this book of Luke that are at his feet casting lots, trying to figure out, playing a game to see who gets the clothes of the man that is on the cross. Jesus looks down upon them and in that moment he prays for them. And there is this sense that what his words coming out, Father, forgive them, is speaking directly to those Roman centurions, those Roman soldiers that are there doing the actual crucifixion. And we know that there's some effectiveness there because at the end of the story, when Jesus dies, one of them looks up and says, surely this is the Son of God because I've never seen something die like that. I've never seen someone like that. And so he's declaring that he wants to forgive them in the midst of all of this. But I think it's interesting to me, or what is really challenging to me is that he's doing this right in the midst of them crucifying him. This is not some days later after he's had time to think about it. This is not after he's realized, you know what, that's really what intended to happen. And I rose from the grave and everything's great and we're back to good all here. He is doing it in the midst of it. I found this quote this week from Charles Spurgeon that I just think is um, amazing because it's true. Charles Spurgeon says, It was not a prayer for enemies who had done him an ill deed years before, but for those who were there and then murdering him. Not in cold blood did the Savior pray, after he'd forgotten the injury, and then he could forgive it more easily. But while the first red drops of blood were spurting on the hands which drove the nails, while yet the hammer was bestained with crimson gore, his blessed mouth poured out the fresh, warm prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he says this for us. If our Savior might have paused from intercessory prayer 
If he was going to pause, he says, if he was going to stop for a moment, it was surely when they put him on the tree. When they were guilty of direct acts of deadly violence to his divine person, he might have ceased then to present petitions on their behalf. But sin, oh, listen to this, sin cannot tie the tongue of our eaters interceding friend. Oh, what comfort is here. You have sinned, believer. You have grieved his spirit, but you have not stopped that potent tongue which pleads for you. What he says is no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how bad you've been, no matter what's happened in your life, you cannot stop the Savior from asking God to forgive you, to bring you to him, to draw you to himself. You cannot stop the power of forgiveness that flows from the cross. That's good. I don't know if you know that's good, but that's good, right? I don't know if you realize that, but it's good. I mean, that last line, man, there's nothing you can do that stops Jesus and his potent tongue. There's never been a more potent tongue. There's never been more tongue with power when he prays to the Father than Jesus. And he is interceding on our behalf even when we are at our worst. Yet while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. Yet while we were sinners, Jesus on the cross, while he is dying, the first thought he has, the first words he says is about forgiveness for the people that are there, but also for you and me and all that would come and accept him as Savior. That's good stuff. I know we lost an hour of sleep, but that's good stuff, right? All right? Just making sure. And here's what it means for us. And this is so important because I just know, speaking in a room like this, talking to this many people, I know that there are some of you in this room that are dealing with, that are struggling with, that are thinking about constantly guilt and shame in your own life for decisions and actions that you have made in the past that still haunt you today. And here's what I love about this whole story is that Jesus came for this moment. It is a dividing line in history. And for this moment he came and he came for the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, shame is one of those things that can take so much from us. Jesus died to save us from guilt and shame. Shame is that thing that makes us feel unworthy. Guilt makes us feel like we don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve God's acceptance. Shame makes us feel we don't deserve what God's purpose is in our life. That we have been marred by sin in our lives and we think God can't love us. God can't use us. That we are damaged beyond repair. It causes us to hide from God, to move away from Him, to get away from Him. It causes us to get away from others, from family. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want to be found out. We don't want people to know what's going on. I heard, uh, I was driving the other day listening uh, to, a, I, think it was, I think it was a Christian radio station I was listening to, and they did one of those would you rather questions. You know what I'm talking about? Like, my kids do would you rather stuff with me a lot, or we find it, you know, would you rather this or that? And they asked the question, would you rather have every thought that you have in a day internally published in a daily paper that would be passed out to all of your friends and family? Or would you rather eat a handful of live bees? Which of those two would you rather have? And the first person that called in and said, and I just thought, this is typical. All right, this is going to sound bad, all right? So this is typical of Christian radio right here. This person calls in and goes, oh, I would rather have all my thoughts laid bare because I'm confident in what. I was like, no, you don't. No, you don't. Nope. I don't know you. I'm sure you I'm sure you're a fine upstanding citizen. No, you don't. And I don't either. You don't either. 
Because it ain't good. Scripture says all fall short of the glory. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a present tense, which means it ain't like you used to. It means you are. And it's easy in the midst of that to feel guilt and shame because we realize how far we are away from the Lord. We can put on a good front. We can come to church and tell people, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. Doing good. Following the Lord. Read my Bible every day. Praying every day. I'm good. And then you get to the internal thoughts. If that were to be published, you go, woo. They ain't not who I thought they were. And here's the thing. Shame has been around. You know what's interesting? When you think about all right, so you think about the first two chapters of Genesis, right? The first two chapters of Genesis. Creation, creation of the world, creation of man and woman, and it is perfect, right? Genesis 1 and 2 is perfect. Genesis 3, where things go off the rails, sin comes into the world, everything goes crazy. But Genesis 1 and 2 is where it's perfect. And here's what I find interesting. There is this part at the end of that when God is describing what he has created, and he said and he created a man and female. And it says, and then he says, and the two of them were naked, and they felt no Shame. You know what I find interesting about that, okay? He's describing paradise, and he doesn't spend time on the unbelievable nature that he has created. Of the animals that are out there, he doesn't talk about the foliage. He doesn't talk about all of the mountains. He doesn't talk about all of the unbelievable things that they were seeing in this perfectly created garden that has been untouched by sin. What he says about the epitome of perfection that was in the garden is that these two people felt no shame. And the next time we read in chapter 3, we don't know how far this was. We don't know how long they lived in the garden without shame. But we know in chapter 3 when they go and they bite of the apple or the fruit, whatever it was. Doesn't tell us it was an apple, whatever it was. All right, you pick your fruit, your favorite fruit, and put it there. Whatever it was, they ate it. They give it to the, she gives it to the husband. The husband eats it. Adam and Eve both sin. Suddenly sin descends on the world. And what does it say about them? It says suddenly they realized they were naked. And they were ashamed. And they hid from the Lord. And what happened in that chapter 3 when God comes down and says, where are you, Adam? And Adam's like, well, we were naked. Well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? Well, this woman you gave me, God. She caused some problems. And the woman says, God, it's your fault. You put the serpent here. Right? And God gives out the punishment, right? Man, you're going to toil. You're going to work. Woman, there's going to be pain in childbirth, and you're going to have that. Serpent, you're going to crawl on the ground. And then he says, and one day you'll bite the heel of man, man will crush your head. One of her descendants will crush your head. You know what's interesting about that? Is everything in the Bible from that moment to the moment we read a minute ago in Luke chapter 23 is leading up to Luke 23. And when Jesus is on the cross, he is crushing the head of the serpent. And he is crushing the sin barrier that has caused us problems between us and God. And he is removing the guilt and shame from our lives because he is taking it upon himself. And he says, Father, forgive them. I mean, Jesus, when he was in his ministry, he forgave people of their sins all the time. Paralyzed man brought to him. Remember that? Friends bring the paralyzed man. They drop him through the roof. Guys are just kind of hanging out in front of him, in front of him. And he says, wow, it's great. Your, your friends have a lot of faith. Your sins are forgiven. And the guy's like, that's great. Um, can we do something about the legs now, right? Jesus says, no, your biggest need is your sins. 
Now, he eventually heals him, but he forgives his sins first because that's the deepest need of our soul. The sinful woman who anoints his feet, remember he looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. And Simon goes nuts, why can you do that? How can you do that? And he says, listen, she loves me more because her, she has sinned more. Or the woman caught in adultery that's brought before Jesus, literally it says she was caught in the act of adultery. That means they pulled her out of the bed. Pull her out of the bed. They bring her before Jesus, probably still in a state of disarray. She stands before Jesus. All the men are around her, accusing her, pointing fingers at her. The law says to stone her. Jesus, they're trying to trap him because it would look really unmerciful if Jesus stones her. But they also say if he doesn't acknowledge her sin, he is not really from God. And so he stoops down and begins to write. Do you remember this story? He begins to write. We don't have a clue what he wrote in the sand. I don't know that he was writing anything. But just doodling. He's just drawing in the sand. And the guys kind of look at him. They're like, what are they doing? Is he going to do something? And Jesus stands up and says, you're right, you're right. She probably needs to die. Let you who are without sin cast the first stone. Go ahead. And then he just stoops down and starts writing again. It says one by one, starting with the older first, they leave. Drop their stones and leave. And then Jesus looks at her and says, you got any accusers left? And they go, not, she goes, not one. And he says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. His ministry had been about forgiving people of their sins and their guilt and their shame. And yet, he gets to this moment on the cross and that job is not yet complete because he has not yet died on the cross for our sins. But he's he's in the process of that. His mind immediately is on the soldiers at his feet that do not even realize what they are doing in that moment. And his his idea is to forgive them in that moment. And in the bigger picture, he's thinking about us. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have accepted the forgiveness of your sins by him for what he did on the cross and you believe in what he did on the cross and that he rose again from the grave and you have given your life to that. Can I tell you something? There is no reason to fear, feel guilt and shame in your life. And here's what I know, though. A lot of you do. As I talk to you today, there's a decision you made five years ago, two weeks ago, 14 years ago, 30 years ago, and you still feel guilt and shame about it. There are a lot of you in this room that you realize that something wasn't right. There was some sin you committed. There was some action you did. There were some words that you said. There was some decision that you made. And you know it is not what God intended. It was a sin. We all make sins on a daily basis. But this was one that particularly had consequences for your life. And you realize it. And you have been dwelling on it and thinking about it since it happened. The question becomes, what do you do with that? How do you move on? How do you realize the forgiveness that Jesus has given to you? I'm going to give you three things as we kind of finish up today. The first thing is this. We need to recognize the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, I'm going to give away the ending of the sermon series before we get there, but most of you already know it, so it's probably okay. 
He's going to utter seven sayings. This is the first, and we're going to get to the end. And the last one he's going to say is one word, and it is a powerful word. I've done sermons on this word before. Many of you know the word, and it's tetelestai, but at the end it means it is finished. And when Christ declares that, when he gives that, he is saying that my work is done, my purpose is fulfilled, and what he is purposing to do, what he has come to do, the reason he is here is because he has come to save us from our sins. And the work of Jesus on the cross is all that is required to save us from our sins. That blood, because of the resurrection that came the next uh, Three days later, we can have confidence in the fact that when he died on the cross, it was his sin taken upon him for us. He knew no sin, but it says in scripture that he became sin for us. And it's finished. It's done. You couldn't do anything to forgive yourself of your own sin if you wanted to. It's impossible. Because you cannot add to the work of Jesus on the cross. It's done. Over. Finished. Completed. And what we have to believe is that it's enough. And we, I know we're in church, and so when I say those kind of things in church, people are like, Amen, that's right, preacher, preach, come on. Well, maybe not y'all, but some people would, alright? Alan does, that's good, alright? Because in church, that's what we're supposed to say. But in our lives, we don't live like we believe that. We think we gotta add to it. We gotta help out. We gotta do something. We gotta make penance for it. We gotta make up for it somehow. We gotta prove ourselves somehow. We gotta get over that somehow on our own. When we trust in the final, finished work of Christ on the cross, we realize it is done. In Hebrews, it says that there used to be this system. Now, you see it throughout the Old Testament where people had to sacrifice year after 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 year to see their sins forgiven. And it says, but when Christ came, when Christ died, he died. His sacrifice was once for all. It's done. We believe it. We trust in it. And when it comes to my guilt and shame, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then I say it is in my past. And although it is in my past, it does not determine my present or my future because I have been forgiven of my sins by Jesus. I am free. And let me tell you something. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I cannot imagine how you live under the reality of our sin and guilt that happens in our lives. And I want to tell you this. You will find nothing more freeing in your life than having your sins forgiven by Jesus. We believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The second thing is we do is we confess our sins to Him. Now here's the truth. He has forgiven us of our sins, past, present, and future. But do you know what? You and I still sin. That's why we don't want our thoughts published every day for everybody to read. Because sin is not just what we do with our outward actions. It's what we do internally. Jesus brought that to bear. He says, it's not just have you committed adultery. It's have you ever lusted after a woman. It's not just have you ever murdered. Have you ever hated anybody? You're like, woo, that's a different standard, Jesus. And the truth is, when we sin now, because our sin has been removed and forgiven already, we ought to run to Christ to let him know what's happened so that he can set us free from the power it has on us now. 
And here's what I want to tell you. You can sin today, and Jesus won't remove all consequences that may come from your sin. So you can't just go do whatever you want to do and not expect consequences because that's the world we live in, that we still bear the consequences for our sin. But I want to tell you this, all right? That if you go and sin today, and you don't confess it to the Lord, and you harbor it in your heart, it will prevent you from living the life that God intends for you to live. It is not helpful to hide it or to return from it or to run away from it or try to figure out how to get over it. The reality is you bring it to the Lord, you lay it bare before him, and you say, I am sorry, I have sinned. And he's going to tell you it's forgiven, but then he's going to remove the power that that sin has over your life in the darkness. First John, he says that if we are faithful and just to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. And then here's the last thing. You live in the freedom that's provided by Jesus. You trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. You confess sins when they happen in your life. And then you live in the freedom that comes from Jesus. What does that mean? That means, first of all, you do what he asks you to do. You just follow his commands. Listen, (laughs) when my God cares about me enough that on the cross where he is dying, he is literally saying a prayer. For those there that are putting him to death and an extension of that to all those that would come afterwards. When on the night before he's crucified, when he knows it's coming, he literally says a prayer for you and me. When that happens, that's the kind of God I want to serve. I want to do whatever he asks me to do. What does it mean to live in the freedom provided by Jesus? It means you fulfill your purpose here on earth that he has called you to do. In spite of what you've done in the past, you trust in the Lord and you move forward. When I think about this, I think about somebody that was closest, perhaps the closest person on earth to Jesus, Peter. Mentioned him earlier, right? We all know about Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times, right? So if you remember the story on the night that he's arrested, he's taken to trial and it says Peter's trying to get in and somebody asks him a question and says, hey, aren't you with him? He goes, no, 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 no. And then somebody else, no, no, no. And then another, wait, wait, you, you can tell by your accent. And he curses and says, I don't know the man. I don't know of anybody that was feeling worse on the Saturday after the crucifixion of Jesus than Peter. But Sunday came. And do you remember when they go and they find the empty body? The women find the, the, empty, the empty body, the empty tomb. They find the empty tomb. And the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. So they go back and they tell Peter and all that seems good. Jesus appears, the whole thing. But then we get to the end of the book of John. And there's still one moment that needs to happen. And I love this moment. You know this. If you've been around by the church, you know this. You, you come, they, they want to have... Um, a meal, they've gone back out fishing or whatever. Jesus comes and says, hey, let's go have breakfast. Catch, you'll catch some fish. It says that when they pull in the fish, Peter jumps out of the boat to run. Gets to the sower. They're all there. Okay. They're eating breakfast together. Back then they ate fish for breakfast. I don't know how many of you have had a fish sandwich for breakfast lately, but that's what they were doing. All right. They're around there and Jesus says, hey, Peter, I need to have a conversation with you real quickly. My guess, in that moment, Peter's heart sank. Because apparently they hadn't had this conversation yet. And Peter's thinking, uh-oh, here we go. You know those conversations, right? When you've done something, you know you've done something. Maybe when you were a kid and you heard mom or dad say, hey, let's go have a conversation. You're like, oh, 
That's not good, right? Hey, just a quick question for you. He goes and he sits with Jesus, and I want you to think about this for a moment. This apparently, from what we can read, is their first real interaction, the two of them, since Peter denied him. Notice what Jesus doesn't ask Peter. What I would want to ask Peter. What were you thinking? Right? Why did you do that? Can you explain to me what was going through your mind when that happened that day? I thought you said that you would do whatever it took. I thought... Jesus doesn't say any of that, right? He doesn't come at him accusatory. He's already forgiven him of his sins. How do we know that? Because he died on the cross for him. The work is done. He didn't have to relive it. But I find this interesting. He asked him one question three different ways, doesn't he? He doesn't say, why would you do that? Are you going to be better? He doesn't ask that. Are you, are you going to are you gonna clean your act up, Peter? He just says, do you love me? And this is what I love. Because in the midst of this, if you, if you look in scholars or you read headlines about this, they call it the restoration of Peter. Here's what I love. He says, do you love me? Peter says, you know I do. And then he says, they can get back to doing what you're supposed to do. Fulfill my purpose for you. Feed my sheep. Get to work. You want to live in the freedom that comes from guilt and shame? Get to work. Do what Christ has called you to do. Now, I'm not just talking about your job or your profession, although that's part of it. I'm not just talking about your family, although that's part of it. I'm talking about the God-given task of bringing glory to the name of Jesus Christ and spreading the kingdom of heaven throughout this earth. Get on board with your part of that task and His purpose. And then here's the last thing, and the most difficult probably, of how to live in that freedom. You forgive as you've been forgiven. Jesus told a parable while he was here. While he was on this earth, he told this parable about a guy that had an enormous, unpayable debt forgiven. you remember this story? He walks away, and then he finds somebody that he knows that owes him a minuscule amount, and he says, oh, I can't forgive you your debt. You're going in jail. And the master comes back and says, what are you doing? You have been forgiven a debt you could never pay, and you hold it against somebody over there. Can I tell you something? If there was ever anybody at any moment in the history of the world who could have rightfully held back forgiveness, it was Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. Yeah, pastor, but you don't know what they did to me. I don't. You're right. Probably not. They haven't put you on a cross that I've seen. I don't mean that to Jesus juke you here, but it's true, right? The reality is we will never have anyone do anything to us anywhere comparable to what was happening to Jesus. And Jesus' first words from the cross were, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Here's what I find interesting. There are a lot of people out there, scholars out there, that will say Jesus is just aiming this just at the Roman soldiers. Here's why I think he is aiming it at a broader audience than that. Because a few months later, one of his followers named Stephen is being stoned to death because of his belief in Jesus. And it's from people that full well knew what they were doing to Stephen. And what does Stephen say as his last words? Father, forgive them. He quotes Jesus in this moment. 
You want to live in the freedom that comes from not having guilt and shame is don't hold other people's sins over them in your life either. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Believe in the finished work of Christ. Confess your sins to Him when they happen, and they will. And live in the freedom that it provides. Let's pray together.